This is the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. You can join uh, Facebook groups and just put it out there and say, here's you know, the top 20 things I'm worried about. Here's the top 10 things I'm worried about. Which one of these would be something you'd be unwilling to tackle? Like I see questions like that in Facebook groups all the time. People just asking, you know, kind of what I call the hive mind, you know, what do you think about this particular situation? And there's always people on Facebook completely happy to give you their opinion on absolutely everything. So I assure you, it's not going to be a situation where you put it up there and nobody's going to respond. Everybody's going to respond. You're listening to the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast, where we discuss tangible tips, tricks, and best practices for becoming financially free. The show is designed for people who want to either start real estate investing or for those who want to scale their real estate business. What's going on, everyone? This is Jonathan Farber, your host of the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. I hope you're all well and healthy. For any first-time listeners, thanks for being here. The goal of this show is to explore ways to become financially free through real estate or to increase passive cash flow through real estate. A little background on myself, I work in corporate America at a software company and my side hustle is real estate. I currently own eight rental units and looking to add more this spring. I have house hacked, bird, flipped, and done short-term rentals to name a few strategies. My current focus is 20 to 30 unit apartment buildings in Ohio and Kentucky. I love to network and learn. So if you'd like to connect further, feel free to find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Bigger Pockets. What's going on, guys? Have a very insightful episode today with Alex Brashears. Um, I'm running out of words, acronyms, or uh, not acronyms, just descriptive words for all these amazing guests we've been having. But uh, Alex has a unique perspective on private lending, which I don't hear a lot of information flowing around in the market of how to get access to private lenders. You hear a lot more with hard money lenders than you do with um, private lenders or traditional lenders, even like creative strategies. But she's a private money lender. She explains all about how it works, how beginners can use private money. But it's really cool that she actually started this business uh, as a side hustle and something she wanted to do being a uh, uh, I forget, either a chemistry teacher or a biology teacher. I think that's what it was, which she's doing on the side now. But she goes through her whole story of how she got into this business, how she first heard about someone making a lot of money doing this and how she always in the back of her head wanted to do something like this. So it's really cool. She started her business uh, in April, 2020. So not too long ago, but I've seen her do an awesome job on social media, promoting the business, networking, getting out, having people in her group, which we'll talk about. And also her being in other people's groups and podcasts. And she's already helped a lot of investors get their first deals done or just seasoned investors get deals done. She primarily works with flippers, but can work with all sorts of investors. doesn't matter. Multifamily, single family, um, all sorts of stuff. So really cool. I did not know a lot about this space until maybe six months ago. So I get to ask her a lot of questions that I remembered not really understanding about the private money world and how to get access to it. And I also ask a lot of questions about comparing it to hard money or traditional financing and go through all that. So I think there's a lot there for just understanding how the financing of investment property works. The thing that mainly stood out to me from this episode was how she explained the value of private money for beginners and how it's not as scary or uphill as we think, especially if you have a good private money lender. It's not that different than getting a loan from a bank, except it's a lot easier in a lot of cases and you don't have to come out of pocket. So we go through a couple scenarios. I actually walk her through a dummy deal scenario where I just 
present a deal and she walks me through what it would cost and how it could be set up based on what the after repair value is and how much I'm buying it for. So just very, very uh, useful, I'd say. So that was the uh, main thing that stood out to me. Today's tangible tip is has to do with virtual assistants. So I've given a tip similar to this and I talk about this a lot in the Facebook group, uh, having to do with virtual assistants are amazing, but they need direction. They can't think for you. So uh, the reason a lot of people struggle with virtual assistants is because they expect the virtual assistant to know what they have as a problem or they don't even flesh out what their plan or problem is before they just throw it on a virtual assistant and ask this person who's 5,000 miles away who is seeing this from a different lens and has no idea what you're doing and trying to have them decipher what you want in your business. So I love virtual assistants for the reason of it helps me get clear of my steps and my process so that I can hand it off to someone else. And it makes me realize a lot of times I don't have the steps that I should to follow this like a system or a franchise like Michael Gerber talks about in Emeth. But it helps so much to put things in place that you can then hand off. So a tip for working with virtual assistants, if you are going to bring them on, make sure that whatever you're giving them is step-by-step step, that they can just step in, walk through it. And if they have questions, follow back to you. And usually when they have questions, it just means that you have a breakdown in your system. So highly recommend working with virtual assistants, but they can't solve problems that you haven't figured out yet yourself. They can maybe help brainstorm with you, but if they don't have context, they just won't be able to figure it out. So that was today's tangible tip. Really, really good episode today with Alex Brashears on private lending. All right, Alex, what's going on? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I am excited to dig into your story. I think you're the first private lender or at least private lender, also investor that we've had on the show. Um, and I know you've been doing a lot of cool stuff on digital and social media as well. So excited to dig into all that and uh, catch up and we spoke once, but uh, these are always fun to ask the curious questions I have and then some uh, audience calling questions. But uh, before we get into what you're doing today or your background, um, what is the current state of your day-to-day -day business uh, in Virginia with coronavirus or things kind of opening back up? Is business moving? Is business been affected? Um, we're recording on September 23rd. So I, I'd like to open with that question lately just because it's very different depending on where you're at in the country. Absolutely. So I would say Virginia, for the most part, is now back up and functional. Um, we still require masks going into places. People can sit down in restaurants and, and have, you know, dinner, but they don't have to wear their mask. Uh, we have movie theaters open, but I don't see a lot of people going to the movies. <laughs> um, but I mean, for the most part, I would say life is still, you can still tell there's something going on, but it's still pretty normal, um, which, you know, has been good because I fund exclusively fix and flips, and that means that people can have multiple contracting teams on a fix and flip again because they don't have that level of, you know, being scared of being infected like we did at the very beginning of the pandemic that was really slowing down construction for some of my borrowers. So that has eased up as well. Okay, awesome. I'm excited to dig into that too, just because I think there are a lot of misconceptions about private lending, what type of projects it can go towards, and what the benefits are of being on the other side of it. So we'll get to that. Uh, for those that don't know, you mind just giving a quick background of how you got into this realm of real estate and what your current business is today. Absolutely. So way back when, um, when I was just starting college, I was going to a local, uh, you know, the local RIAs in the area. I actually grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. So I was going to the Jack's RIA meetings. 
and I was just talking with people. I'm a pretty extroverted person. You know, I'm from the South, never met a stranger and you just start bumping into people. And I happened to bump into someone who was a hard money loan um, lender. He was actually, you know, he had a, a fund that he'd lend from. So he wasn't a broker. It was basically his own money and a pool of a bunch of other high net worth people. And he's like, you know, you're pretty good with numbers because I was going to school as a STEM major, as a chemistry major. And he's like, you're pretty good with numbers. You know, would you be interested in doing this part time? You know, it's pretty flexible hours. And he kind of explained the process. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I could do that. I can run numbers. I can, you know, run by properties and make sure that, you know, the inspection was done or whatever it happens to be. Um, and I did that for a couple of years. And then being in Florida, you get a little older, you get tired of being outside in the heat and the humidity pretty much nine months out of the year. So I was like, all right, what's the next move? So I jumped to being a conventional mortgage broker. So I was dealing with a lot of first time home buyers because I had already established a pretty good network within the investor community. Well, now those investors had buyers for homes because they were also doing fix and flips. So it just kind of naturally evolved to helping that client base, but still working with investors. Um, ended up going off to graduate school, kind of let the real estate thing fall back because I'm a military spouse. So I'm currently sitting in my 19th home in 19 years. So trying to maintain licensing and all the lending requirements and all those various states and countries just wasn't worth it because we lived places sometimes three months, six months. The longest we'd ever lived anywhere is 22 months. So that doesn't really, you know, bode well to having a career. Um, so I went to graduate school. I'm now a chemistry professor. I teach chemistry online um, thanks to COVID because everything got moved online in higher education which turned out to be a benefit actually. Um, you know, going back to the hard money lending, that was always one of our like someday dreams. You know, someday I'm gonna do what this guy did. How I started in real estate was with this guy. I'm gonna do this someday because I got to see, you know, the money flow through the business. And then uh, COVID shut the world down. I had some real estate connections here and then hard money lenders literally just shut their doors. They said, we are not lending, we are not funding projects, have a nice day. And it left a lot of group of investors in the lurch going, you know, what am I going to do to get this deal done? Um, so we started doing private lending as a business, you know, during the pandemic, you know, who does that? But it's, we've actually been super busy because of the pandemic, because, you know, conventional lending has tightened up and hard money lending has, you know, it was for a while just basically dried up, but they've come back to a certain degree now. Got it. Okay. What made you feel... Actually, I was going to say what made you feel comfortable doing this during COVID, which I will come back to, but I want to go back to more like the mechanics or what you did or what someone could do in the startup phase of starting this business for someone that's going to maybe hear this full episode and say, okay, starting with hard money lending as a business has a lot of uh, draw. It's attractive. So how did you actually start doing it? You're, uh, uh, a teacher and now you are saying, I'm going to start this business. I know it's a good business, but how do I actually start it? Do I, who do I go to first? Just start calling people asking if they're willing to invest money. Do I start creating content so people know what it means? Um, do I need to get registered or licensed anywhere? Like what do I need to do? And I'm putting myself in your shoes. How did you start doing this? Like bring us back to day one of what do you start doing if you decide you're going to be a hard money lender? I would say the very first thing, decide what you want to lend on. Because the second you start telling people that you have private funds available, they are gonna pitch you every deal under the sun. So mm. I literally you know, got pitched an elephant farm in Texas. At, you know, like, don't you wanna invest in this elephant farm in Texas? No, I really don't. 
So when I, when I you know, started sitting down and thinking, what do I want to invest in? Um, you know, what market, what price range? Do I want to do a first lien, you know, first mortgage, do a second lien? Do I want to do gap funding? Um, and you really just kind of start putting those pieces together on what you're willing to lend on. And then once you have that framework, the very next step is going to be talking to an attorney because you want to have someone that's knowledgeable in this field because there's things called usury laws that every state's gonna have a different usury law. Some municipalities have some additional usury laws, like if you live in a high cost area. Um, and those are basically the limits on, and rules you have to follow when it comes to lending, you know, and any sort of lending. Um, and there tend to be different laws for non-owner occupied property, commercial property, um, what they would consider a commercial loan. So from my business to an investor's business would be what they consider a commercial loan. Um, so you just, you want to have that conversation with an attorney early on to figure out what the upper limit is. Um, you can talk with other private money lenders and see kind of what the marketplace is kind of offering as far as fees and interest rates. And then once you have a good idea of what you're willing to lend on, you have an attorney draw up the paperwork for, if you want to do an LLC, for example, draw up an LLC. Mm -hmm. um, they, my attorney, I had them just go and do kind of a plug and play document for in Virginia, they're called deeds of trusts and other states are called mortgages. And that's what would actually be recorded at the courthouse. So they just did a, a template for me, I can go in there and I can add, you know, the legal description for the property, you know, the, the borrower's name, the company name, the dollar amount, you know, all those different little things. Um, and same thing for a promissory note, I had an attorney draw up the promissory note. And it's basically another plug and play document where I can just go and add what I need to add. Um, and ever, that way I have the, you know, I'm able to sleep at night knowing everything's kind of above bar, you know, that it's done correctly. And then that information gets sent to the borrower, um, to the borrower's closing company, attorney, whoever they're using. And that's what they're going to be signing at closing. And then the deed to trust or the mortgage is what's actually being recorded at the courthouse to secure mm -hmm. your position against the property. So it's considered secured lending as opposed to unsecured lending, which would be like a personal line of credit or a credit card. So it's not necessarily peer-to-peer -peer lending. It's, it is secured by an asset. Yeah. Just on that note there, something that I didn't understand for a long time was the difference of secured versus non-secured lending. And maybe you could follow this up with anywhere that I misunderstand or if it's, if it's right or wrong, but the way I kind of understand it is secured means it's backed by something physical that if you give me a loan to go do this flip, if it doesn't go well, if it's a secured loan, you can take the house and it becomes yours. You can finish the flip. You could sell it. You could do whatever you want with it as opposed to a non-secured loan where there's nothing physical backing it. You give me a hundred thousand dollars. We have some type of legal agreement in place, but there is nothing for you to take control over if I stop paying. Is that exactly. Accurate? Yes. Yep. Exactly. And you can have secured loans against things, other assets other than property. Um, you could have secured loans, you know, basically if it has an asset and it has value and you're able to take control over a title of it, you know, whether it's stock CDs, you know, something um, you can do, that would be another form of secured lending. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between hard money and private money? So there's a huge difference and a lot of people like to use them interchangeably. And I, I feel like the hard money lenders are especially egregious about doing this because private money has that little sparkle around it, that positive connotation. And then hard money tends to be like, oh, that's super expensive. It has tends to have a negative connotation. So they especially like to use those interchangeably. 
Um, but hard money is generally going to be a company and it's going to be funding that those dollars that you are receiving are going to be coming from some other entity, not the person you're talking to. So it's going to be, you know, hedge fund money. Maybe they have a warehouse line of credit with a non, uh, non-bank entity. You know, maybe they have some sort of lending agreement with a, with a bank agree, you know, with a bank that says, here's the underwriting guidelines that you have in place. I will stick to them. You cough up the dough. Um, so they are basically having no control as far as the decision-making process on where the funds are going. You have to fit in these models. You have to check these boxes. Here's your points. Here's your interest rates. Take it or leave it. Whereas private lending, it tends to be money that is solely ours, whether that's, you know, friends and family, our own money, um, you know, business lines of credit, HELOCs, you know, whatever our source of funds are. So we are doing our own underwriting we have the flexibility to go, okay, you know, how about this interest rate? We won't charge points, but we'll do this interest rate. We won't have you do monthly payments as far as interest payments go. We'll just roll all that over into the payoff, you know, in three months, for example. So we have that flexibility to work directly with the investor and make those decisions essentially in-house because it's our funds. And, you know, other than usury laws, we don't really have any limitations on what we can and can't do. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there are a lot of uses for private lending and it's going to probably be a, it depends type answer, but for the beginner listening right now, wondering how they can utilize private lending to start or grow their business. What are some of the most common scenarios that you see or beginners can come to you to work with you on um, to grow their business? So for beginners, private lending, it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but it can be a very powerful tool because the private lenders that I personally know that work with beginners, there are, there's a crowd of people that do not want to work with beginners, but the private lenders I know that do work with beginners, um, they will be on both. What they will do is take on the project. They will help mentor you through the project um, and they will be on both the debt side and the equity side. So, you know, it might be what that means. Sure. So on the equity side, you, know, you might, so if you bring, if you bring me a, a deal and say, okay, you know, I'll loan the money for the purchase, I'll loan the money for the rehab, but I also want, you know, 50% of whatever the upside is when this sells. And then, oh, by the way, you're also going to pay the interest and the points for, you know, the money that you are borrowing, but you're basically giving up part of the equity side of the deal for, the oversight, the mentorship, you know, to get the process going, to get through that, you know, if you're doing a fix and flip, if you're doing a burr. So mm-hmm. most of the private lenders that I know that work with beginners, that's kind of how they insulate themselves and kind of make it worth their time to work, to work with a beginner. The mm-hmm. other thing that can be really great for a beginner is if they have joined some sort of mastermind, um, they have some sort of mentor, they have an official mentor that can sign off as sort of like an advisor and say, look, you know, I don't have a track record, but here's the people I have in my corner that do have really strong track records. You know, I have this general contractor that's done 50 flips in the last year. I have this mentor, you know, that I'm in their program and it can be verified that you're in their program and you meet with them weekly. So we kind of have an idea that, you know, if you get lost into the woods, you know, you have someone that can go in correct course for you before you end up in a situation where we have to take the property back. That's interesting. What I hear thinking what, what I think hearing that is in multifamily, the concept of like a KP, key principle, that can lend you money, but also be an advisor in your deal, which to me seems probably like one of the best options that no one talks about. People are either thinking 
pay for mentorship or pay to get money. And I like that option because it's a little bit of both. If you can find a deal or hustle and other parts and bring value um, for someone. I, okay. So for you in your business now, what are the most common types of uh, deals that you're funding? Is it majority flips, single family? Is it, is it um, repositions of multifamily? What have you seen so far in the few months that you've really gotten this business running? Um, for the most part right now, we are only funding fix and flips during COVID. Um, and that is a reflection of the fact that here in Hampton Roads, like in many markets around the area, inventory is at a historic low. So all the properties that we have funded that have hit the market, you know, once they're on MLS, they usually have multiple contracts, multiple offers out within a day or two. Um, the properties, you know, for, goes from active to pending, you know, usually within 24 hours. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm on board with that because that's where I get paid. I get paid when, when they sell the house. Whereas in the Burr model, for those that are not familiar with Burr, that's the buy, you know, renovate, rent, refinance, you know, and then repeat. Um, those sorts of models require conventional lending, which has been tightened up since COVID started. And granted, you know, in the fix and flip, they still also need conventional lending, but those are going to be owner-occupied properties. They have a lot more lenient standards when it comes to lending. They have a lot more programs available to them versus an investor that's going to try and refinance, do a cash out refinance possibly on some of these properties that especially those, that particular suite of products has really tightened up. They want higher credit scores. They want higher reserve limits and, you know, they have more seasoning time. They just, it just gets harder for the investor to refinance out. And again, as me as the lender, that's where I get my money back is when they refinance. Mm -hmm. So if the stopping point in the whole Burr thing is where I'm getting paid, I'm not going to lend on that right now. So not to say in the future that that's going to always be the case, but just right now during COVID until I can kind of get a better gauge that lending has sort of resumed and investors are not complaining about, you know, doing a cash out refinance or any sort of refinance, then we can reevaluate that. But right now it's just fix and flips because of market conditions with inventory being so low it's kind of a no-brainer let's let's stick a decent property on them on the market it's a great renovated home uh, i know the general contractor that for the investors i work with they do great work and then the investors turn around and offer a home warranty when they go to sell the property so i know a family is going to move into that home and they're going to have something that's newly renovated and they're also going to have a home warranty for that first year which is great for the particular markets we're looking at. A lot of first-time home buyers is the, the type of home I like to lend on. And where are you mostly lending? What locations? Um, it's going to be in Hampton Roads. Uh, so Virginia Beach, uh, Chesapeake, uh, up in Hampton, that, the seven cities right here around the basin. Can we walk through a scenario of what a deal would look like for someone that has never conceptualized how private lending or creative lending works on a flip and sure. just in the scenario of I call you up Alex and I say I found a great deal it needs a little uh, TLC and it's a hundred thousand I for just sake of round numbers it's a hundred thousand and it needs fifty thousand I think I, of worth of work and I think it'll be worth three hundred thousand after and it's gonna take me six months to do it um, I have a couple of rentals or maybe I've done one or two. 
Um, I feel really good about this deal though. So I just, I, but a bank won't give me a loan on this property. It's in too rough shape. That's, that's a common reason. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know what to do. So how do we set this up? Um, how, how much is it going to cost me? Uh, how long do I, can I do this? And um, what are my like monthly payments? What options do I have? Like I'm a beginner. How do I do this? So just because this is especially going to be appropriate. Um, so one of the, I did a deal, one of my very first deals is very, very similar to what you described. And in that case, the investor actually had a subject to deal. So they took over the first mortgage for this particular property. I believe they took it over at about 117,000, 118,000 right in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the property was going to appraise at about 265. So when it was when it was full and done, and then uh, even better, the 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 seller just wanted seven hundred fifty dollars cash, and then he just signed over the house. Like this investor got a great deal. So he uh, we walked the property. He, you know, it was it was a, it was a flipper's dream. You know, three bedrooms. It was going to be two bathrooms when he was done. You know, it's very close to the town center, shopping center, very good school district. Like this was a home run. This is a no brainer. Yes, I'll lend on this and. So I came in actually in the second lien position or what they call gap funding. Since there was already a first mortgage in place, there was still plenty of equity in the deal uh, between what he purchased it for, taking over the subject to deal and closing costs, and then adding in some renovation. There was still plenty of equity in this particular property. So I actually walked the property with him, met the investor. We had talked back and forth well before he'd found this deal. And just said, here's, you know, what I want to do. I want to, you know, add an extra bathroom or he had, a, it was a half bath. He wanted to add a full bath to the master. He wanted to redo the kitchen, you know, some other minor things. And it was going to be about $30,000 for a rehab. And then he wanted three months worth of holding costs for the primary for the first mortgage. And I was like, okay, you know, let's, let's run some numbers. Let's look at some things. So I just talked with him and said, you know, what are your expectations? And here, what are my expectations? Let's find something that works for both of us. So since he was going to be doing so much outlay of cash at the beginning, and he was also going to be making that monthly first mortgage payment, we agreed that his payments, his interest payments that were supposed to be due every month, we would just roll that into his payoff when the property sold. So during the three months he had the property, um, from the time he closed to the time he closed was, actually, I think it was like 68 days. So it wasn't even three months. It was like two and a half months. Mm -hmm. Um, he didn't make any, he didn't make any interest payments to me, but he kept paying the first mortgage. And then um, as he did some work, I would inspect it or he would send me pictures of it. And then I would tell the title company to go ahead and release a disbursement. So a certain amount of money that we had agreed upon, you know, after you got the roof replaced, I would do $6,000. After you get, you know, the bathroom installed and the kitchen updated, I'd give you $15,000. And then anything else after that would be done once the entire house was complete and on the market. Um, so we just came up with what's called a draw schedule. So after a certain amount of work was done, proof that the work was completed, the contractor signed off that, you know, he had been paid in full, so he couldn't come back with a mechanics lien and say, here you go. Um, and it just really kind of evolved into a relationship. I think that's what a lot of people don't really understand about private lending. It's, it's not an office, you know, you're calling and talking to us. We want, it's basically, we're trying to have a, a trust, enough trust in you as someone we met on the internet to go and say, here's $50,000, here's $200,000. So going back to your question there, what does that conversation look like? I always advocate start talking to private lenders well before you have a deal. 
because like for me, for example, I only lend on fix and flips, um, single family homes in the Hampton Roads area that are in high retail neighborhoods, you know, good school districts, you know, nice quintessential, you know, starter home type properties. Whereas, you know, I will get people that will just randomly message me and go, what's your rates? And it's like, well, that's irrelevant. You know, where are you located? And they're in, you know, they're in Ohio, they're in Idaho. And like, that's great, but I don't lend in Iowa or Idaho, you know, none of those places. So you really want to have the conversation with them. What do they lend on? What would they be interested in investing in? That's really what you want to have the first conversation. You don't want to start the conversation with what's your rates because you're going to get, it depends, you know? So you want to make sure you're starting that conversation in the right way. And that's how most people do start the conversation. Yes. So just to summarize and, and recap for someone who, again, wants to maybe go out and hunt down a deal, find out what their creative financing options are, and do it in the, I'd say most, um, in a way that they don't have to come up with as much cash out of pocket that they don't have at the beginning anyway. So in this scenario, they found a property that was subject to, and for anyone that doesn't know what that means, all it means is you're basically assuming someone else's loan. So everyone that uses a mortgage has a loan. There are some cases where you can do a subject to deals for another episode where you can take over that person's loan they remove themselves from the equation and you start paying that loan to keep the house. That is basically just the holding cost to keep this thing going along with probably taxes and insurance. Then if you want to do the repairs, as Alex just explained, and Alex jump in anytime if, if I didn't get this right, but um, they, you will decide what repairs need to be done. You will then have those repairs done. Once they're completed, you will show Alex that they're done and she will pay you back with draws to reimburse you for the uh, things that you had fixed up. And during that time, you're not paying Alex anything as far as interest or additional payments because you're going to be paying that at the end when you flip this property or you do your cash out refinance. Now, a couple of questions that I had along the way there though are um, for someone that is uh, they, they maybe don't have that much money on the front and they can cover the subject to like payoff, but even in a case where there wouldn't be a subject to, they can take control of this property. Um, are there, in, in that case, were you funding um, how much of the, the flip or how much of the repairs in that case? 90%, all of it. Um, and I mean that back on the draw, like if they covered 10,000 repairs, are you paying them back 10,000 or 9,000, something like that. Again, just for people listening to get a real idea of what their costs would be out of pocket if they were to engage in something like this. So the, I will lend according to a per percentage of what the after repair value or ARV is. So mm -hmm. just like a hard money lender, they tend to do, you know, 65%, 70%, you know, sometimes 75%. So for a fix and flip, like I mentioned, that's in a strong retail neighborhood, I will actually do up to 75% of the after repair value. So when you take 75% of, in this case, it was 265, whatever that number is, is the maximum amount I would feel comfortable having out on that property. And that includes the first mortgage. So if you already had, you know, 117,000 out, you know, whatever the difference between 117,000 and then about 75% of 265 is, um, that's basically what the amount would be available to the investor. Now, in this particular case, the, the property was in pretty decent condition, just that the major expense was actually just redoing the kitchen mm -hmm. um, and adding in a shower for to make a full bath. So, you know, he didn't need all of that extra 
money that he just, he just had that available equity to him. He just said, you know, the only thing he was asking for was uh, about 39,000. And like I said, that covered his holding costs, um, a little bit of an oops factor in the budget. So in case they got into things and found, you know, something else was wrong, they had to add that to the rehab budget. Uh, but his scope of work was about 27,500, 28,000. Uh, but he only ended up borrowing about 39,000, even though he's probably up, you know, eligible for a little bit more than that. It's just a matter of what, what he had in the deal. So it's basically, it, I don't look at it as if you have $30,000 worth of rehab, you know, I'm going to give you $30,000. It really depends on the equity of the property, what the after repair value is and what the combined, what they call CLTV, um, combined loan to value is. So that's the first mortgage and the second mortgage together. Got it. And just in that example that I threw out um, for anyone listening, trying to follow along with the math is let's say I found it for a hundred and I was putting 50 into it. And I thought the ARV, the after repair value is going to be 300. So 75% of 300 is 225,000. So Alex would have been comfortable lending up to 225,000 between taking possession of the property and then the repairs on top of it. But we were well underneath that. So uh, wouldn't have to worry about it. It would be more or less fully financed. Um, two, two last questions um, as, before we get you out of here, time always flies, is um, a, a listener might be trying to figure out, okay, this sounds good, but how do I know what the cost of my repairs are gonna be? And then how do I send that back to Alex? and not be embarrassed if she tells me, what are you talking about? This isn't even close to the repairs you think this is going to be. Because a lot of wholesalers, and again, for those who don't know what wholesalers are, they just find off market deals and they put them on Facebook and emails. And sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. And sometimes they'll throw out crazy stuff like, this property only needs 25,000. And people run with that. And I will just say this as a, as a tip, never run with that because they're in the business of making money. So they're just selling you stuff. So you always need to, I have a little bit of a system that I use as far as understanding like what are the actual costs to get this thing up to make ready for the neighborhood that I'm in. But what advice do you have, before I get to my last question of how you assess it, but what advice do you have for a potential investor listening right now that thinks they have that deal and they are trying to calculate what their rehab costs are and they're not a contractor? So my... There's a really great book uh, Bigger Pockets has done, and it's basically estimating rehab costs. And I think there's actually like two volumes. It's a really thick book, um, yeah. but that's a really, really good start for a beginner investor. The other thing I can recommend is having a home inspection company kind of in your back pocket. So if you have a deal and you're interested in putting a contract in on it, you know, it's well worth the hundred bucks, 125 bucks to have basically a, a home inspection company come out just as you would for your primary residence. And they can point out all these things that will potentially be a problem that need to be replaced, need to be updated because they are do that's literally their job. That's what they're trained to do. Um, so they will have a kind of a rough idea of what those expenses would be, what's kind of typical in the area. So I usually tell new investors to start making friends with home inspection companies that would be willing, you know, just be upfront with them and say, look, you know, can you do a little bit of a discounted rate? This is a property I'm looking at potentially buying, but you know, maybe spending an hour with that person, if even if you don't put a contract in or win the contract, you spend an hour with that person listening to what they're saying, listening to what's typical in the area, listening to what's a good HVAC brand, what's not a good HVAC brand. You know, it's got a flat roof, here's the problems. It's got a tile roof, here's the problems. I mean, if you do that three or four times on different prospective properties, you're gonna start getting a really good feel for 
what's typical in the area, you know, look out for this type of electrical, look out for this type of plumbing because you've walked the property and spent that hour, two hours with that home inspector. That's so interesting. I thought you were going to say contractors. I have not yeah. heard anyone say inspectors. Do you think there is a time and place in that equation for contractors or you think it's just a better, better way to do it with, with uh, um, inspectors? I feel like the inspectors tend to be a little more amenable to that because they feel like it's going to be repeat business. It's not a big time suck for them. They're getting paid for their time. Whereas contractors, you know, unfortunately tend to have the reputation of being highly unreliable and yeah, they might come out and give you a free estimate, but it's not necessarily in their best financial interest to come out and do your free estimate. Cause if you don't get the property, they've just spent an hour talking to you, walking this property and giving you an estimate and you might not even get the property. You might not even hire them. Whereas if you are going out and actually intentionally hiring someone to do it, you know, you kind of create that contractual agreement that this is the services I'm paying for. This is the information I'm looking for you know, they're going to show up, you know, a lot of them have websites that you can just go and book an appointment. You just find a website, you know, book an appointment, pay the fee online, and then meet them at the property at the prescribed time. Um, so, I mean, I, it just, in my experience, it tends to be a lot easier to get a hold of a property inspector than a, an actual contractor. And a lot of them are former contractors or have a whole lot of contracting knowledge anyway. So you're kind of getting the same information a lot of times um, and just a little more reliably. Got it. Cause uh, I mean, I just, we're down this path. So I need to ask a couple more things on it just cause it's really interesting is like, cause, cause I've had it and I'm sure our listeners have had it too, where um, when at any level, I mean, you could be starting out or experience, but you get your inspection report and it's like the scariest thing. It's 50 yes. pages when you're like, this property looked pretty good. And yes. now you have 200 things from a nail sticking out of the ground to a foundational crack and you're trying to decipher what matters here and it's it's overwhelming like i okay so just me for example like this four unit that i'm in right now um first non-single family property i purchased i remember when i got this inspection report back and i was like this house is a wreck i was like this house is a disaster i'm like <laughs> Then I talked to the broker and she's like, no, it's really not. Like, there's just a couple things we'll ask for credits and it's not that big a deal. But I just, I want to check the box for anyone that's thinking about doing this or has that experience. So if you do get a report back from an inspector, what do you recommend someone does with that to know like what's serious on here and what's not and what should I tackle first and what should I not worry about tackling? So first off, having that report can be extremely valuable because just like you mentioned, you went back to the broker and the broker's like, oh, no big deal. We'll ask for some seller concessions. So you, it's not, you know, Bob Smith, my contractor said this was wrong. It's like, here it is in printed form. They usually take pictures. Here's the actual problem. So you have some ammunition to go and negotiate a pretty good deal, you know, as long as the seller's open to realizing their property isn't gold. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I think that's, that's advantage number one. Um, but advantage number two is since you have everything in writing, you can kind of sit down and itemize yourself. Or if you have that mentor, you have that mastermind group, you can join uh, Facebook groups and just put it out there and say, here's, you know, the top 20 things I'm worried about. Here's the top 10 things I'm worried about. Which one of these would be something you'd be unwilling to tackle? Like I see questions like that in Facebook groups all the time. People just asking, you know, kind of what I call the hive mind. You know, what do you think about this particular situation? And there's always people on Facebook completely happy to give you their opinion on absolutely everything. So I assure you, it's not going to be a situation where you put it up there and nobody's going to respond. Everybody's going to respond. 
So you can always use that kind of that hive mind, you know, to kind of see what the consensus is, what would they be worried about? Um, and if you can include the area that the property's in, so don't just go and post your, you know, report, just say, this is a property in Arizona, here's the top 10 things that I'm kind of worried about. You know, what's your other, what's everybody's experience with properties in Arizona that have these problems? And mm -hmm. I assure you, people will respond. So it's really about, you know, having that community, um, you know, whatever label, if you're a female investor, you know, and joining the investor groups, um, mm -hmm. you know, anything like that, you know, the burrs have tons and tons of groups. So if you're into the burr model, um, just going out there and being active in those forums and talking to people and posting the questions, asking the questions, asking for help. Or if you're in some sort of mastermind group, you know, going back to that group, going back to that mentor and going, you know, here's the 12 things that they found that I'm worried about. Are these really concerns and what should I do about them? Great answer. Last question before we tell people where they can find you. How do you know it's a good deal if someone presents it back to you and says, uh, and now putting the same deal as $100,000 deal on the other side of the table, I think it's great. I think it's got all the potential. How do you know that it's great and feel good about lending your money or other people's money on this deal that this person thinks is great, but now you have to figure out if it's great? I'm going to do a little quick, what I call napkin math, you know, so if I, if they, if you guys go and tell me it's 300,000 and be like, okay, you know, 75% of that's going to be 225. They're picking it up for this. They're thinking, I'm just going to kind of trust, but verify your numbers. But initially I'm just going to trust and say, these are the numbers and see if the deal makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and then generally they'll send me some pictures. Um, you know, they'll do a video walkthrough. I had one borrower just do a video walkthrough of the property when they happen to be over there and just kind of get an assessment for what they were going to do. And then I usually have their broker send over um, what's called a BPO broker's price opinion or a CMA, a comparative market analysis. And that's just basically provided by whatever realtor you're working with. And that'll say, here's the comps that we are pulling for this house. This is what we think the, the value is going to be when you're done. Um, you know, obviously give or take the amenities that you put in and the finishes that you put in. Uh, but basically, you know, it also, I kind of look at the borrower's experience. So if I know I have a relatively green borrower, new borrower, um, you know, if it tends to be a, a lean deal, I'm just going to say, look, you know, this is the numbers I'm looking at. Um, you know, this is what I'm kind of afraid of. I'm going to be upfront. You know, I'm afraid you've only done, you've, you bought two turnkey rentals. Yes, you're technically an active investor, but you've never done a fix and flip. So, you know, there's a big difference between buying a turnkey rental and doing a full renovation that's $50,000 worth of rehab. Um, and also actually managing their expectations. I had one borrower come to me that had a $60,000 scope of work, but he was not, he was going to do it all himself, but he also had a W2 job and a wife and three small children. And I'm like, at the end of 60 days, you are not going to have one of those three things. Like, does your wife know you want to do $60,000 worth of renovation by yourself and still work? Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's really having that conversation on a personal level where it's like, you know, are, are what you're asking for, is that reasonable? And if I'm, if I don't find it reasonable, I'm going to say, this is what I'm struggling with. My, your expectation that you can do a W2 job and have a wife and have three small children and handle a 60, you know, a $60,000 rehab in two months. I don't buy that. You know, if you happen to be able to pull it off with somebody else, please come back and show me the documentation. I will fund your next loan. But, you know, I'm not setting myself up for success and I'm not setting you up for success, having that expectation in place. Alex, what is the best way for people to find you, learn more about you, or uh, connect? There's been so much good content here. Um, 
we could go on for a very long time, but for people that want to, you got their interest peaked. Uh, so my business is infinite road investments. Uh, so the website's just www.infiniteroadinvestments.com. And then I actually have a Facebook group called private lending lessons where I teach people about private lending, both from the perspective of how to do it. And then also how to work with a private lender. So we do seminars weekly, uh, you know, different talks about how to find a private lender, how to put a deal package together, how to put a real estate resume together. So it's both for active investors and passive investors. I um, mean, I'm all over that. So I'd be happy to send you a message or send me a message. Um, and I love talking to people. I'm an extrovert stuck inside thanks to COVID. So, you know, I love hopping on Zoom calls and talking to people. It makes my day. So mm -hmm. I have, I'm happy to send anybody over a link, you know, just send me a Facebook message. I'm happy to send over a link so we can set up a Zoom call. And I'm happy, even if I don't fund your loan, I'm still happy to connect you with people that I might know, talk you through a process. If you just need help analyzing a deal and you're like, what would this look like from a lender's perspective? This is what I want to offer. This is what I think the scope of work is. You know, I'm happy to talk through those things because I'm one of those people, a rising tide lifts all boats. So if I can make my community more prosperous, that in an indirect way makes me more prosperous. So I'm happy to help. So please reach out. Awesome. Well, Alex, thank you so much for jumping on and thank you for taking the path of education and community building, which I think that's how we first connected. Um, just Facebook groups and what's going on there are so cool and how people are getting exposure to ideas that wouldn't have been brought to light otherwise. So um, there's no shame in asking questions. There's no dumb questions in this. This stuff is not taught in schools. It's not taught by no. financial advisors. Our parents don't know anything about it, but the savviest investors do. And the most um, creative investors who use it find ways to scale very quickly without having to use their own money or their friends or family's money that you may not have. So it's really cool stuff. I appreciate you jumping on. Just want to say thank you again and uh, best of luck in 2020 and beyond. I'm really excited to be uh, connected with you and talking more and maybe look at some projects in Virginia and see if we can tag up there. But absolutely. You. Just awesome. Yes. Thank you so much. All right, Alex. All the best. See ya. Hey, you millennial millionaire, do you want more? Then head to the Millennial Millionaires Through Real Estate Facebook group, where there are tons of step-by-step -step walkthroughs, tools, templates, and free networking to help you achieve financial freedom through real estate. And if you want Jonathan to help you personally reach your goals, then feel free to set up a one-on-one -on -one call in the link below or message him on any social media platform and apply to, well, work with Jonathan.